Father, I ask that you would do an amazing work in our midst tonight. I pray that everyone would drink deeply the beauty of your grace and mercy. I pray as we dive into a large part of Scripture here, that, Father, that we would have the mindset, that we would have the endurance, that we would have the perseverance to work through this and to grab every single bit of gold that is waiting for us in these verses. Father, I thank you for what you've done in my heart over the last few weeks in preparing this sermon, and I pray, Lord, that you would do the exact same thing in every person's life here tonight. We pray this in Jesus' holy and mighty name. Amen. If you are a Christian here tonight, I want to encourage you with something. And in fact, I want to encourage you to go back in time. And I want you to remember the first time that you took a drink from God's grace and mercy. We call that salvation. I want you to, for a moment, just consider that moment when you drank in, you understood, you could not get enough of the grace and mercy of God. Your eyes were opened. Your ears were opened. You understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and you ran into His arms. You had never heard of such love, such compassion, such grace, such mercy. And in that moment, not only were you transformed that day, but you have been transformed for all of eternity. Remember the appreciation that you had when you thought about what it was that Christ specifically did for you, not the person next to you, not the others in the room, but in that moment, it was as if it was you and Jesus. And all you could think about was Him. For some of you, it was weeping at an altar. For some of you, it was in a conversation with a friend or a loved one. For some of you, it was in the middle of a message that all of a sudden, there was just a burning in your chest and you knew that's true. And it changed your life. See, Paul has been writing 11 chapters that are all about the grace and mercy of our glorious God. He has been writing 11 chapters about this great thing that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we enter into these verses here, it's as if we are going on to a bridge. We are leaving theology and we are going into practice. As we finish up chapter 11, this is the end of the theological section of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the Apostle Paul looks at his readers and says, what are you going to do with this information? In light of the grace and mercy of God, In light of the loving kindness of God, what is it going to do in your life? And once that begins in your life, are you going to continue to drink deeply of it day in and day out? When we think about the word appreciate, I think it's important for us to give a definition. To appreciate something is to recognize the full worth of something. And I want to encourage you in something. When you were saved, you did not recognize the full worth of the grace and mercy of God. And in fact, we as followers of Christ will spend all of eternity pondering the greatness 
of the mercy and the grace of God. We will be given to this unlimited wisdom and knowledge of God to delight in for all of eternity. And a part of that is His grace and mercy. But friend, there is plenty for us to know in this life. And Paul has unpacked this grace and mercy for 11 long, deep, precious chapters. The more we understand the grace and mercy of God, the more you will worship and delight in God. I want you to hear that. The more you properly understand God, namely His grace and mercy, the more you will worship and delight in God. Some of us in the room have lost our passion for Christ. You are a Christian, but when you think back at that moment when you drank from that well of grace and mercy, you might be saying, man, I want that zeal again. I want that excitement again. How can I make that happen? Answer, going back to the well and drinking deeply of it day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out. And for us to do that, we have to understand what's God's great purpose in all things. Answer, Romans eleven thirty six, the middle of the bridge. And by the way, the rest of the bridge is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. But the middle of the bridge says this, For from Him, that is God or Christ, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And then this amazing statement, To Him be glory forever. Amen. Everyone on the planet lives by one of these two creeds. The first creed we just read. The second one would be this. For from man, and through man, and to man are all things. To man be glory forever. Amen. If you're in Christ, you are rescued from that creed. And now we live for His glory. Not for the glory of man, not to make much of men, because there's something that we can get distracted in, and we're going to see this here in a moment, to make this about Gentiles and Jews. And by the way, to make this chapter, to make this book of Romans about men is to do yourself a great disservice. Do we learn something about God's dealings with men? Absolutely we do. But there's far more greater things to delight in, and that is us knowing God. Because there are two great knowledges, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourself. And when we desire to know God and ourselves according to God's word, it is in that moment that you understanding his grace and mercy will lead to a greater and greater excitement in your life. See, the purpose of every created thing and being is to glorify God. We are called to glorify God because He is glorious. And so this is really important. What does it mean to glorify God? And what does it mean that God is glorious? Because if I'm going to glorify this glorious God, I have to understand terms. And by the way, Paul has been unpacking the reason we should be glorifying God and also unpacking why God is glorious for 11 chapters. 
And as we get ready to start here in a moment, in verse 25, I want us to consider Ephesians chapter 1. So if you would leave this marked in your Bible here in Romans chapter 11 and turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 1, I want us to just consider a few verses there before we flip back to our main text here this evening. Because I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying. And we're going to start in verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 1. This sounds very familiar, by the way of what he unpacked for us in 11 chapters. It just happened to be that he only took three to do it in the book of Ephesians. But this is what he says, starting in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, in him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. By the way, that glorious grace, which he lavished upon us. He has lavished on you. You're in Christ. He has lavished on you his glorious grace. Do you know it? Do you understand it? Do you desire to get deeper in it? You should. He goes on, if you would go with me to verse 11, to say this. In him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's important. And we've already talked about this. I want to remind you, our great God works all things, not some things, not most things, all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, which I reminded you to consider early in the sermon, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Again, Romans eleven thirty six, To him Be glory forever. Amen. That should be the passion of the Christian life. I want to live for his glory with everything in me. The scripture tells us that we were created for his glory, that we were saved for his glory. But what is this understanding of glory? When he talks about glorious grace, or let's just say glorious mercy, or let's just say glorious love, what is he saying? He's saying that it is glorious because it is beautiful. It is precious. It's beyond any kind of worth you can put on it. And if that is the case, if that is simply true, how hard should we pursue to know this grace, to know this mercy? If it's as glorious as God says it is, and if the response to seeing it as glory is to, to, excuse me, if the response in seeing his glorious grace is for us to give glory to him, then how important is it that we understand His glorious grace. Starting in verse 25, the word of the Lord says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight. If you remember last week, there was an issue. There was an issue of arrogance and pride with the Gentile believers. And any time that arrogance and pride creeps its way into our life, we take our eyes off of God and we put our eyes on ourselves. It's what Jesus encountered in the Gospels. 
as he would talk to the Pharisees. Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees, in their knowledge of the grace or the glorious grace and mercy of God, when they saw Jesus with sinners, they were disgusted by it. Think about that. They had read of the glorious grace and mercy of God all of their adult lives and had been taught it as children. And yet something had happened in their life that when they saw Jesus with sinners, they were disgusted by it. They had allowed themselves to feel like we are better than those folks over there. And Paul was warning the Gentiles of doing the exact same thing. Well, why in the world would the Gentiles look at the Jewish people in a negative way? Because of what Paul just explained to them. They denied Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Lord and Savior. And the Gentiles, we've received him. We went through the book of Acts. We were talking about this a few sermons ago as we saw the Apostle Paul going into cities in the book of Acts and he would preach in the Jewish synagogues. And some people would come to know Christ, but most of the Jewish people got jealous of the fame, the attention, the way that God was working. They got jealous and wanted to see those men beaten, imprisoned, and lose their lives. Why? Because of arrogance. Because of pride. And he's warning the Gentile believers, be very careful how you observe each other. Because anyone who is saved is not saved because of anything they did. Remember the words of Romans chapter 11 in verse 6. He says this, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's looking at his audience and he says, no one is saved by works. No one. If you've experienced God, if you've drank in the goodness of God, if you've experienced his grace and mercy, it was not because God looked at you and found you desirable. It's not because he looked at you and put your works on a scale and said, you've done more good stuff than bad stuff, so I want you. No, God offers us salvation because of grace and mercy. There is not a person on the planet that ever came to God and said, God, you owe me. We are all debtors to God. And by the way, none of us could pay back that debt. We must drink this in, not in some self-defeating way, but in a God-exalting way. So often when we hear sermons, or what I would say hard sermons that are hard against sin, we sit in self-condemnation as opposed to sitting in the glorious grace of God. This, by the way, is not an invitation to sin. But you know that you can't out-sin His grace. You can't. And when a preacher calls you to repentance. It isn't so you'll feel bad. It's so you'll live. And how do we live? By drinking in His glorious grace. And He's looking at the Gentiles and saying, do not forget where you came from, which was hopelessness. Gentiles, you didn't even know anything about God when Jesus found you. Humble yourself before the Lord. He goes on to say this, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. I'll tell you, the grace of God is a mystery. The way that God loves us sinners 
is a mystery. In Romans 5, 8, it says it like this. God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wanted them to understand that what he was getting ready to share with them is that every action of God is because of grace and mercy. And then he says this. Because see, clarity gives us the opportunity to respond properly. You as a Christian should want as much clarity about God's word as possible. If there's a mystery, I want to know it. Because if God's put it in his word, I want to know it so I can grow in my love for him. Because everything in this book is going to help you understand who you are and who God is. And understanding who you are and who God is is how you delight in our great and glorious God. He says this, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, listen to these glorious words. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's a big theological word called eschatology. And we've spent some time over the last few weeks talking about the millennial reign of Christ. But what is so unfortunate about this portion of Scripture is we can get so caught up in eschatology that we miss the glorious grace and mercy of God. And by the way, that's sad. Because all of your ologies, that is your theologies, are meant to help you know who God is and who we are in light of this. And if you do not grow in your affections for God in your ologies, you're mishandling them. And this is so important for us to get because when I read about the Deliverer coming and banishing ungodliness, I get jacked because I remember when that happened in my life. See, Romans chapter 6 tells me something incredibly interesting. I used to offer myself willingly, offer myself willingly as a slave to sin. I loved sinning. I was not an enemy of sin. I was a fan of sin. I loved sin. And guess what? That condition didn't change in my life because I worked my way out of it. No, my Savior came into my life and banished this ungodliness from my life because this is how God works. He took me from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. And what he's saying to the Gentiles is God is going to turn the nation of Israel back to him. And that's important. But what's more important than that is that the way God saves is the way that God saves. There is not a person on the planet, future, past, present, that is saved in any other way other than God stepping in and doing something about the condition we are in. And that, by the way, didn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It doesn't change from the church age to the tribulation. It doesn't change from the tribulation to the millennial kingdom. The only hope for any person that will ever be on this planet is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the deliverer banishing ungodliness from a people that could not do it themselves. And what is so amazing about this specifically is who we're talking about here. The nation who rejected their Messiah. 
This is unexpected. If you and I are God, we're not doing this for people that reject us. Absolutely not. We've got thousands of years of investment with this people group. They've got the Old Testament. They've got the covenants. They've got the prophets. They've got the temple. They've got the tabernacle. They had it all. And what did they do? They rejected it. And what does our glorious God do? He offers mercy and grace. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 11. He looks at his audience and says, For some glorious reason, God has continued to save us Jewish folks, despite the fact of us rejecting Him. Remember the Apostle Paul? What we talked about a few sermons ago? He was going around persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. Imprisoning Christians. A fan of a man like Stephen being stoned to death for the Gospel. He loved it. And what happened? God showed up. And he banished ungodliness from Paul's life. This is amazing. We need to be so careful with this because it is so easy for us to lose the importance of the gospel in our day in and day out Christianity. It's easy for us to lose hope for people. It's easy for us to have a hardened heart based on people's responses. I'm sure that a lot of the Gentiles had legitimate reasons from a man's perspective to not like the Jewish people very much. We see in the book of Acts that even true converts to Christianity that were Jewish would put burdens at times on Christian believers saying, well, you still need to be, you still need to be circumcised. You still shouldn't eat certain meats. You should still abstain from certain behaviors because they still treasured their religion so highly. See, we have to understand that it's never been about works. It's never been about worthiness. Israel was not worthy in the Old Testament of God's grace. They weren't worthy in rejecting their Messiah in the Gospels, and they will not be worthy in the future of this grace. And yet, God offers it. He goes on to say this in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. What are we supposed to do with enemies? We're supposed to love them. We're supposed to love our enemies. And he's looking at the Gentiles and telling them, do not let your heart become hard towards the Jewish people. Love them. Because there is only a partial hardening on them. Some of them will be saved. Love those people and rejoice when they're saved. Just like you would rejoice with a Gentile brother or sister when they come to know Christ. And then he says this, But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What is so amazing about this, and again, we can just zoom on past this. God made promises. God made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. He made promises. And God made promises or covenants with himself. And that's why he keeps them. They are unconditional covenants. And by the way, our salvific covenant is unconditional. It's not based on your works. 
It's based in faith and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is fully and totally secure because it's all about Him. Because all things are to His glory. Friend, if you had to contribute anything to it, it would no longer be fully about His glory. We do not contribute to it. We glory in it. That is, our lives represent that we have tasted of this goodness. And not only have we tasted of it, but we want everyone to taste of it. This election was a beautiful reality that God had promised to the people of Israel, and He was not about to forsake it, which we see in verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That is, God does not change His mind, and praise God for that. Because all of us have given him plenty of reasons to change his mind. But he doesn't. When he looks at us and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When he looks at us and says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Think about Israel's history just for a moment. God rescues them from Egypt. They reject him in the wilderness. God brings them into a land and they look at him and say, we don't want you as our king. We want a man as our king. Leading all the way up to the Messiah who comes. Healing, saving, loving. And they say, thanks, but no thanks. What's God's response? Grace and mercy. This is amazing. Now, something that is important to consider here is that God's grace and mercy for the unregenerate is not forever. But there's also good news here tonight. If you're hearing this message, the grace and mercy of God has not ended for you. You can repent. You can cry out to Him for grace and mercy. And you will be saved. He goes on to say this in verse 30, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, that is Israel's, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. Do you find God's grace and mercy glorious and beautiful? Because everyone was in disobedience. Enemies of God. And God offers salvation to all and to those who will believe. Do you find God's truth glorious? Do you find His Word beautiful? Do you go to it saying, God, I want to know you in a deeper way. I'm getting into this today because I want to see you more beautiful than I did yesterday. You cannot make yourself emote. But you can put yourself in a position where emotions can flow. 
And the way that you do that is by going to God's word and praying to him and say, God, I want to see you as you are. I want to drink from this beauty and I want this beauty to lead to an emotional response. Because if not, I may become arrogant and proud and God, I want nothing to do with arrogance and pride. I want to humble myself by regularly coming to you and saying, God, you're my only hope. There is no way for me to delight in you as I ought unless you act on my behalf. But God, I know my responsibility in this is to go to the places where you are beautiful. And the main place to find the beauty of God is in his word. Do you find his truth beautiful? God's love is glorious and should lead us to glorify him. In 1 John chapter 4, we're told that God is love. And then he immediately points, John does, to Jesus Christ. You want to see God's love? You want to see God's grace, mercy? Look at Jesus. And then he tells us something a little later on in the passage. He says that perfect love drives out fear. Fear of what? Fear of judgment. Because I've been loved by God. Not because I'm perfect. Not because I have it together, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf, I can boldly come to God, His throne of grace and mercy, and know that He accepts me and receives me because of what Christ has done. And that kind of love should make me fearless in wanting to dive into the beauty of God's glorious grace and mercy and love and truth. God's holiness is glorious. And should lead us to glorify Him. God being just is glorious. How amazing is it that not one person on the planet will ever get away with their sin? Israel didn't get away with their sin. The Gentiles didn't get away with their sin. The apostles didn't get away with their sin. God didn't let them off the hook. He punished their sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. He bore our iniquities. He bore our sin. The wrath of God was poured out onto Christ. Oh, the glorious grace and mercy that is offered to us. God didn't pretend like our sins didn't happen. He dealt with our sins so that we may enjoy Him for all of eternity. God being faithful is glorious. If God was not faithful to one of his promises, we have no reason to trust any of them. If God is not faithful to his promises to Israel, if God is not faithful to his promises to the church, if God is not faithful to the promises to his people, then we have no good reason to trust God. But this book is full of God being faithful over and over and over again to his promises. So when he tells you something, you can believe it. And if he says something's going to happen, you can rest assured it's going to happen. Because God does not change and our God has never lied. He is a faithful God that is faithful not because of our faithfulness, but because he is simply faithful. God saving people is gracious and glorious and merciful and should lead us to worship. You're not feeling it today? Think about that he saved you. Think about your condition. Think about where you are, who you were, that you were an enemy of God under his wrath. A child of the devil is how you were described in John 8, by Jesus. 
He rescued you from that condition. A slave to sin. And he reached in and rescued you by his grace and mercy. God saving people is glorious. And God having wrath or hatred towards sin is glorious. Because the wages of sin is death. And I'm thankful that God hates sin. Because of his hatred towards sin, you and I can be saved. By God's nature, he is a savior. Something that we read here a moment ago in verse 32 is this, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God allows for sin and hell for us to see his grace and mercy as glorious and to give him glory for it. If we were not sinners we would not know of his grace and mercy. There must be something that is so glorious and beautiful and amazing that God wants us to know his grace and his mercy. The fall in Genesis 2 and 3 gives glory to his grace and mercy. God gave Adam a command. He says, do not eat from that tree. What does Adam and Eve do? They eat from that tree. God told them, you eat of that tree, you will die. And what does God do? He clothes their nakedness. He has mercy and grace. How glorious. The promise to Abraham points to his grace and mercy. In Joshua 24, we see that Abraham and his family worshipped false gods. They weren't looking for Jehovah. They weren't searching God out. God saved Abraham. And he gave him a promise that through him the world would be blessed. And this blessing would lead to the world giving glory and honor to his great grace and mercy. The law gives glory to his grace and mercy. We're told in Romans chapter 3, That the law makes us aware of something that, by the way, is very important for us to be aware of. It makes us aware of our sin. Jesus said this, the standard is, be ye perfect, as God is perfect. He said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees if you're going to be in right standing with God. And they knew what that meant. They knew that was unattainable. What was the answer? For them in humility to cry out to God for grace and mercy. The Gentile separation from God gives glory to His mercy and grace. And we see this in Jonah. The Ninevites were not looking for God. They were sinning it up. And in fact, in Jonah chapter 1, it says that their sin came up to God. What does that mean? It was time for God to judge their sin. And God had every right, by the way, to just rain down fire from heaven on Nineveh. Why? Because they hated God and loved sin. And what does God do? He sends a prophet that doesn't even want to go. To preach the gospel. 
to look at those people and say, repent, turn from your sin. And Jonah would never have expected for them to do it, except he knew his God. If it was just up to men, Jonah was right. The Ninevites would have never turned to God if it was up to them. They would have heard this old prophet that probably smelled like whale puke and would have just ignored him. But that's not what happened. The whole city turned to God. Did God owe the Ninevites anything? Absolutely not. Does God owe Israel anything? Absolutely not. Does he owe you and I anything? Absolutely not. What does God do? He extends grace and mercy. The work of the cross of Christ gives glory to his mercy and grace. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name given under heaven in which men and women can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And he gives that to us. By believing in the work of Christ, it cries out mercy and grace. As you're drinking it in, do you desire for it to flow out? Oh, how glorious and beautiful is his mercy and grace. Israel's rejection, the church age or the time of the Gentiles, gives glory to his mercy and grace. Israel receives him as their king. No salvation offered to us Gentiles. God in his mercy and grace allowed Israel to reject their Messiah so that you and I can enjoy his grace and mercy. And then Israel's millennial kingdom restoration gives glory to his mercy and grace. If you've not learned over the last three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Israel does not deserve another chance. They didn't deserve a chance. Think of how many people sit in places like this, hearing the gospel week after week, month after month, and even for some, year after year, and they reject the gospel. And what does our merciful and gracious God do? Give them the gospel again today. It's amazing grace. It's amazing mercy. When we consider these kinds of things, does it move us to drink more or does it move us to just become arrogant and proud and passive and unmoved? What should this lead to? Well, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? By the way, no one, and that should humble us. It tells us before that there is a depth to his wisdom and knowledge that you and I cannot dig to. It says how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. This is a man writing this, by the way, that wrote the words of God that has been given to us in this Bible. And he says how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, you can't even measure his love, but you should try. You can't understand the fullness of it, but get in there and experience it and know it and learn about it and delight in it. Get in there with everything in you. Who has been his counselor? No one. Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? By the way, answer, no one has given a gift to God. 
which makes his mercy and grace so glorious. And then he says this, for from him, that is Christ God, the source of everything, through him, God is the means of everything. And to him, he is the purpose of all things. That is, that he would be glorified, namely tonight for his grace and mercy. To him be glory forever. Amen. What do we do with this, Christian? One, a great, humble worship of God. I've been praying that we would be humble worshipers of God in light of his grace and mercy. So often we think of grace and mercy in light of salvation, and by the way, we should. But we should also think of grace and mercy in light of being here tonight. Because every time a message is preached, you have an opportunity as a Christian to go deeper into your understanding of God. Every time you open this up, Monday through Saturday, you dig in. You're doing your time with God. That's a mercy and grace. That you have any desire, friend, I want you to get this, that you have any desire to read His Word should blow your mind. Because you used to be someone that could have cared less. That you have any desire in you to pray. Any let alone to feel that you have a right to. It should blow our minds that our God hears us, let alone answers us. I just want you to sit in that for a moment. There is a large amount of people around the world to pray to a God that will never hear them because that God doesn't exist. And yet in God's grace and mercy, you and I in Christ and all the believers around the world have the privilege, the privilege of speaking to a God who hears and then answers His children. The grace and mercy of God that you and I would be used to share this gospel with someone that they could hear and drink and enjoy what it is. Oh, a humble worship of God that we ought to have. God owes us nothing and yet saved you and I. We ought to worship Him in humble submission. Not going to God with our demands, our thoughts, our ways. Not lowering the standard of Christianity to a place that most would just assume that our God doesn't hear either. But raising the standard to the biblical standard. God has given us the ability to enjoy Him and His beauty for all of eternity and worship Him in humble submission to His Word for His glory. Christian, I, I want you so bad to delight in God's grace and mercy. Stop living in condemnation. Stop finding yourself unworthy. Stop looking at yourself and saying, I can't understand this. No, Christ died so that you can understand this. 
Stop acting as if you're not his son or his daughter. Delight in his mercy and grace. Be reminded of his grace and mercy every time you open up this book and watch his dealings with men and women that fail continually, and yet they serve a God that has never failed once. This grace and mercy must move us if Romans 12 through 16 is going to do us a lick of good. Paul spent 11 chapters screaming to us, grace, mercy, get it. Get it. Understand it. Delight in it. Drink deeply of it. And watch the Lord transform your life and use you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't know him here tonight, please repent of your sins. Not for my sake, but for his glory. Oh, the glorious exchange of knowing Christ. Not one person has ever lost anything in following Christ in comparison to what you receive. You give him your guilt and you receive freedom in Christ. You give him your condemnation and he clothes you in righteousness. You give him your plan for your life, which by the way, leads to destruction. And he gives you the Holy Spirit that will lead you in life. Friends, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain, but you've got to see him as glorious and beautiful and better than life. And I can't make that happen. And I pray that you would repent of your sin, trust in the work of Christ, receive his spirit, and be saved here tonight. Encourage you now to just do some business with God wherever you're at here tonight. And then here in a moment I will pray, and as I pray, if the worship team would come up to lead us in a celebration. A celebration of what it is that God has done here tonight. Let us pray. Father, as we get onto this bridge, crossing from Romans 11 to Romans 12, would you prepare our hearts? Would you let us delight in your grace and mercy? Will you let us delight in your love and your truth? Lord, I cannot get over how much grace you've extended to me in my life in this day, in this week. Your grace and mercy is mind-blowing. Father, I pray that we would all, all of us who are in Christ, 
would grow in our understanding of it more and more every day. Kill arrogance in our life. Kill pride. Humble us, Father, that we would be useful in your hands. Father, thank you for all you did here tonight in Jesus' holy and mighty name. Amen. If you would stand with